0: Hi YouTube, it's Josh and Miles and welcome back to my channel. Today I'm going to be covering another solved true crime case for my Curious Case series. Yes, I'm aware today is not a Sunday. All last week I was in Belfast doing pre-production and I thought I had a lot more free time than I did. And I thought I'd be able to record this video during that time in Belfast. So this video is coming a couple of days late, but don't worry because that means you're just going to be getting two videos in... This
1: is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently
0: one week, just a few days apart, I'll still be uploading a video this Sunday and you've got this video today So two videos in one week. Love that. I'd just like to say thank you so much for everyone that has subscribed and likes and watches my content on a weekly basis It means so much to me and I'm almost at a thousand subscribers at the time of recording this Which is absolutely crazy considering I started just a few months ago So thank you all so much for that kind of support I'd just like to point out this video has not being made because there's respect or anything like that It's just being made to spread awareness about this case put compiling information from various public sources on the internet. Now, with all that being said, let's delve right into this case. On Friday, the 24th of February, 2005, Mark Lunsford, a single father with a nine-year-old daughter, woke up to his alarm going off at 5 a.m. Now, this was normal. This is the time that Mark usually woke up to get ready for work. Mark worked for a company called The Dirt Boys, which is a garbage disposal company, and he drove a dump truck for this company. Mark lived with his daughter in a double-wide trailer and they lived on Sonata Avenue in Homosassa, Florida. Now Mark didn't just share his trailer with his nine-year-old daughter Jessica, he also shared the trailer with his parents and his parents were called Ruth and Archie and both of them were quite elderly and they lived with Mark to help look after Jessica when Mark was at work and also so that Mark could help look after them due to their old age. When Mark woke up early on that Friday morning he reached over to his radio alarm and switched it off. He could hear his daughter Jessica's alarm also going off in the other room where Jessica slept. Uh, But this was normal because Jessica tended to get up at the same time as Mark did so that she could start getting ready for school. Mark then got out of bed and began his usual morning routine which was making breakfast for himself, for his parents and also for Jessica. Mark had gone out the evening before on a date with his girlfriend and had actually gotten in quite late after the days. Now some sources claim that Mark didn't get home till about 6 a.m. that Friday morning but the majority of sources claim that he got home fairly late on that Thursday evening, probably in the very, very, very early hours of Friday morning, we're talking midnight, 1am kind of times, and then went to sleep and then woke up to his 5am alarm as per normal. But regardless of what time Mark actually got home from his night out with his girlfriend, Jessica, his nine-year-old daughter, made sure to say goodnight to him before he went out. Now, Jessica was going to be in the bath when Mark was leaving for his date, so just before Jessica got in the bath, she told Mark her father, in case you're not here when I get done with my bath. I just want to give you a hug and to tell you that I love you. Now, Jessica was a very, very affectionate daughter. I would often ring her dad while he was at work just to tell him that she loved him. Jessica was born on the 6th of October, 1995 and was a top student at school. She loved to sing, she loved to play with her stuffed animals, she loved going to her local church youth group, and she used to ride on her dad's motorcycle with her dad. Jessica wasn't quite sure what she wanted to be when she grew up. She told her friends and family that when she grew up, she wanted to become maybe a singer, maybe an Olympic swimmer, or even a fashion designer. Jessica had also just started to experiment with makeup and her favorite color to use in her makeup was purple. And purple was actually her favorite color of all time. Jessica's grandparents put Jessica to bed at about 10 p.m. on Thursday the 23rd of February. Mark, on that fateful Friday morning, continued to go about his morning routine as per usual. And he continued to get ready for work. However, he quickly noticed that Jessica's alarm was still going off and he would have noticed that it had been going off for about 10, 15 minutes straight. Mark just thought that Jessica was refusing to get up to go to school, so he went into the room to wake her up. There was a construction paper sign on Jessica's bedroom door, which had pink magic marker lettering on it, asking visitors to knock and get permission before they entered the bedroom. Jessica had made the sign with the help of her grandparents just the year before. Mark knocked on the door and waited for some kind of response, and when he didn't get a response, he slowly opened the bedroom door expecting to see Jessica, his nine-year-old daughter, asleep in her bed. Jessica always went to sleep clutching her tiger-stuffed toy. But when Mark walked into the room, Jessica's bed was empty. The tiger that she always clutched when she went to sleep was still there, but Jessica wasn't. Mark immediately began to panic and went around the house, searching for Jessica. He started calling her name, but there was no answer. That's when Mark realized that the front door was unlocked, and Jessica was gone. Mark immediately phoned for the police and reported that his daughter was missing. The local police quickly formed an investigation as Mark's family and friends went out to start searching for Jessica. A nationwide missing children's alert was issued, and this alert described Jessica as being four foot 11 tall with brown hair and brown eyes. However, an Amber Alert was not issued for her disappearance, and this was because an Amber Alert requires law enforcement to describe the vehicle in which the child was taken in, or to provide some immediate evidence of danger. Now in Mark Lunsford's house and in Jessica's room, there was no signs of a struggle at all. The police initially believed that Jessica had just got up and wandered out the door. Quickly after the investigation was started, the authorities joined the search. Authorities and volunteers scoured the area in a full-scale search for Jessica. The police even brought in bloodhounds in the hopes that they would be able to pick up a scent for Jessica and locate where she was. The search also had officers on horseback and helicopters in the air. A dive team was also assembled to search all nearby bodies of water. The search initially focused on the dense woodlands that surrounded the Lunsford family home. However, despite a very extensive search, no clues to the whereabouts of Jessica Lunsford were found. The next day, state and federal officers joined the search and volunteers from all over the state came to Homosassa to help look for Jessica. After a week of searching, there was still no sign of Jessica. Naturally, Mark Lunsford and his parents were worried sick for Jessica. And they tried their hardest to hold out hope and to dispel any fears from their minds. Now, Jessica's mother, Angie, split up from Mark Lunsford when Jessica was about one years old. And then Angie moved to Ohio where she remarried and had a son. Angie saw Jessica very, very infrequently. In fact, before Jessica went missing, Angie hadn't actually seen Jessica for four years years. And from what I can tell, um, I'm not sure whether Angie actually commuted to Homosassa to help join in the efforts when she learnt of Jessica's disappearance. However, obviously this is a very personal relationship. I'm not sure of the intricacies that went in between Jessica and Angie or Angie and Mark, but I just thought it was interesting to show you how the media began to paint the Lunsford family. Jessica was born in Gastonia, North Carolina, and when her parents split up, she moved with Mark, her father, to Homosassa. And Mark was granted sole custody of Jessica. Nearly everyone who knew Jessica described her as being a quiet girl, but with a radiant smile. Her pastor told the media that Jessica was very outgoing and friendly, but she was also quite shy in some respects. Besides her stuffed tiger, Jessica always slept with a nightlight on and a flashlight on her bedside table. She did not like the dark at all. Her grandmother told investigators that Jessica was very particular about people entering her room. She didn't really like people going into her bedroom. According to Jessica's grandmother, Jessica never wandered far from home because she didn't trust people. Now, Jessica absolutely loved her father and adored spending time with him. They would often go riding together on Mark's motorbike and Mark often brought her to the Salambar and Grill on US Route 19 and they went there to sing karaoke. Jessica was very, very well behaved at school and cared a lot about her schoolwork and cared a lot about achieving high grades. And she did just that, she always achieved top grades in her class. Jessica belonged to a church youth group called King's Kids and she'd actually attended a meeting at this youth group the night before she went missing. At this meeting she had been preparing for a contest, she'd be memorizing a line from the Bible. Jessica loved stuffed dolls and stuffed animals and her bedroom was a key example of this love for those toys. Her bedroom was absolutely crowded with them. Now after she went missing her family quickly noticed that one of her favorite toys was actually missing, and this was a purple dolphin stuffed animal. Now this toy was a toy that Jessica's father had won for her at a state fair, so it had a lot of importance and sentimental value to Jessica. When a child is reported missing, the police typically check on all the registered sex offenders in the surrounding area, and the police authorities in this case did just that. The detectives quickly discovered that John Evander Cooey, a 46-year-old male, was not living at the address that he was registered to. Now, if you're not aware, a sex offender by law is required to inform the local authorities when he or she moves address. John Cooey had a long list of convictions on his record. He'd been arrested on many occasions for drug violations and was a habitual user of crack cocaine. His past charges included burglary, carrying a concealed weapon, disorderly conduct, fraud, insufficient funds, and larceny. Notably, his driver's license had been suspended for 99 years. In 1991, John had been arrested and charged for fondling a child that was under the age of 16. Detectives quickly discovered that John had actually moved to live in with his half-sister, who was called Dorothy Dixon, and she was 47 years old. Okay, so there was a bunch of people that actually lived at Dorothy's address, and I'm just gonna read them off the list so they don't get their ages and names wrong. So at Dorothy's address lived Dorothy, her boyfriend Matthew Dittrich, who was 21, and her daughter and son-in-law, Maddy Secord, who was 27, and Jean Secord, who was 25. The family all lived in a trailer that was miles away from John's registered address. And this trailer was actually within sight of Jessica Lunsford's home. Investigators promptly drove to the Dixon trailer looking for John Cooey. When investigators arrived at the trailer, they found Dorothy, her boyfriend Matthew, and her daughter, Maddy, were all in the trailer. When they were all asked where John Cooey was, All three of them categorically denied um, that they knew where he was and also denied that he actually lived with them in the trailer. Citrus County Sheriff Jeff Dorsey would later characterize the three of them as a bunch of cracked out individuals a bunch of druggies. The detectives conducted a quick cursory search of the premises, looking for any signs of Jessica or John. Critically, during this brief search, the detectives failed to fully search the bedrooms, and they failed to search one of the closets in the bedrooms, which would ultimately seal Jessica's fate. 19 days after Jessica went missing, detectives returned to the Dixon trailer on March 14th, 2005. The detectives were still trying to locate John Cuey. searched the trailer again, including the closets, but found nothing that was too incriminating. That is, until they found blood on a mattress in John Cooey's alleged bedroom. John Cooey was immediately reclassified as a person of interest. The search for John Cooey intensified and the residents of the Dixon trailer continued to refuse to tell investigators where John Cooey was and continued to tell the investigators that they had no idea where he was and that he hadn't been staying with them. Investigators would later discover that John Cooey had fled the area two weeks prior and got on a bus going towards Georgia. He had purchased the tickets to the bus under a fake name, and the ticket he had purchased was a one-way ticket to Savannah. John Cooey was five foot four, was bald, and had blue eyes. He weighed about 125 pounds, and he looked older than he actually was. John had been in trouble with law enforcement for the majority of his adult life. He had been arrested 24 times in a 30-year period. Soon after John's arrival in Savannah, Georgia, he quickly checked into a homeless shelter. When he checked into the homeless shelter, it flagged on the system and Savannah police went and picked him up. But the Savannah police only questioned him about a possible marijuana violation as they were not aware that there was a warrant for his arrest out in Florida. The police subsequently let him go after the brief questioning. John, scared that the police were now on his trail, fled Savannah and he found his way all the way to Augusta, Georgia, which is about 100 miles away from Savannah. There, he found lodging at the Salvation Army homeless shelter. By the time that John had found shelter at the Salvation Army shelter, the Jessica Linsford case had become national news and was on the front pages of all the newspapers and was constantly in the television news. In some media reports, John Cooey had been identified as a prime suspect in the case and his pictures had been plastered all over the newspapers and all over the television. And all of these reports begged the public to come forward if they had any information about the whereabouts of John Cooey. A secretary that worked at the Salvation Army shelter had seen a picture of John in the news and when John into the Salvation Army shelter, she quickly phones for the police. The secretary told the police that a recent arrival at the shelter looks an awful lot like the picture of John Cooey that was in the news. Augusta police immediately went to the shelter and picked up John Cooey, and they actually arrested him for failing to register as a sex offender in the state of Georgia. Now, while he was being held in jail on that particular charge, Augusta authorities contacted the Citrus County Sheriff's Office saying that they had Picked him up. Two officers from the Citrus County Sheriff's Office travelled up to Augusta on March 17th, 2005, with the sole intention of interrogating John Cooey. These two officers were called Scott Grace and Gary Atchison. John endured several hours of interrogation from these Citrus County officers, which led him to become distraught and agitated. Throughout the entire interview, he maintained and insisted to the officers that he had no idea about who Jessica Lunsford was and wasn't even aware of the case, accordingly to him. This was, however, not the first lead in the Jessica Lunsford case. Not even a month before, on February 27th, 2005, the Citrus County Sheriff's Department released CCTV images depicting a man with two children. The CCTV image was allegedly captured just a few hours after Jessica went missing. When investigators showed these images to Jessica's family, Jessica's family insisted that the person in the images, the girl in the images, wasn't actually Jessica and that it was somebody else. But despite Jessica's family saying that it wasn't Jessica in the image, the police still released these images to the general public. And Jessica's family was actually right. A man quickly came forward who was the man in the images and he was quickly ruled out as a suspect in this case by the investigators. The investigators in this case were now back to square one That was until they got the call from the Augusta authorities about John Cooey being in Augusta The two detectives Atchison and Grace with assistance from an FBI special agent began interviewing John at 2.30 in the afternoon on March 17th 2005. The transcripts for this interview are actually very interesting but are also quite controversial. The transcript transcripts show that Detective Grace pressed John very, very hard for any information relating to Jessica Lunsford. The transcripts also showed that Atchison took a much softer approach. Atchison tried to appeal to John and in his own words, he said that he was trying to talk to him in a way that was human being to human being. Now at one point in the interview, Detective Grace asked John whether he would complete a lie detector test. Now, John responded to this by saying, I guess, I just want a lawyer now, you know. Atchison would describe what happened next as a quick and garbled exchange. However, the transcripts would show a very different story. The transcripts would show that John plainly asks for a lawyer several times. The detectives, however, continued to interrogate and question John without a lawyer present. Then, later on in the interview, John stated in a tired and frustrated way that you'll have got my brain fried here and now sworn disposition, Detective Atchison would later on explain that John Cooey had never asked for a lawyer plainly, and that he had not made his wishes clear on whether he wanted a lawyer present. Atchison went on to explain that he had tried to determine whether John wanted a lawyer present during the interviews, or whether he wanted the interviews to stop until a lawyer was present, or whether he wanted the interviews to continue until a lawyer could be present. It is also possible, according to Atchison, that John Cooey only wanted a lawyer for the lie detector test, which he had agreed to take. The next day, John took the polygraph test, which is the lie detector test, which was administered by FBI Special Agent John Whitmore. It was during this lie detector test that John Cooey actually broke down and confessed to the murder of Jessica Lunsford. John then revealed to detectives where they could find Jessica Lunsford. In a videotaped confession, John confessed that he had entered the Lunsford family home at about 3 a.m. on February 24th, 2005. He had confessed that he had previously seen Jessica playing in their front yard, and that he thought that she was about six years old. On the night of the abduction, John had intended to just burglarize the home. John entered the home through the front door, which actually woke Jessica up. John then ordered Jessica to be quiet, telling her, Don't yell or nothing. And then John instructed Jessica to follow him back to his half-sister's trailer. John's sister's trailer was about 100 yards or about 91 meters away from the Lunsford family home. Jessica was very compliant with John and this statement was actually backed up by the fact that there was no evidence of a struggle in Jessica's bedroom or in the Lunsford family home. John then admitted to raping Jessica after taking her into his room in his sister's trailer. He then kept Jessica in his bed for the night before raping her again in the morning. Afterwards, John put Jessica in the closet and ordered her to stay put. And not to say a word at all, as he went to work at Billy's truck lot. Now, Jessica complied with this and stayed in the closet the entire day. This part of the confession was backed up by DNA evidence that was found in the closet of John's bedroom in the Dixon family trailer. John had actually turned on a TV in his room, which Jessica could then watch through a slight crack in the door of the closet. John went on to tell detectives that Jessica had seen several televised reports of her disappearance and the efforts to try to find her. John told the authorities that he had been drinking and that he had gone high on the night that he abducted Jessica. He said that he was in a drug-hazed state. I'm sorry, but drinking and getting high is obviously no excuse for kidnapping a little girl or even breaking into somebody's house to burglarize them. People get drunk and high all the time and you don't see them abducting little girls randomly. The fact that he tries to explain away what he did all because he was in some drug haze state That just rubs me the wrong way. It angers me even more on top of everything that he's already done to this little girl. John recalled to the detectives that he had cooked Jessica a hamburger at some point during the abduction. John also made sure that Jessica stayed in the closet the entire time that she was there, just so that his housemates would never find out that she was in his room. John kept Jessica in the closet for three days. During this time, he proceeded to rape her on several occasions and mentally tortured her by showing her news sources of people out looking for Jessica. And it was during this three-day period that the detectives came to the house looking for John Cooey and they neglected to check in the closet where Jessica was. Little did those police officers know that Jessica was actually in fact in the closet because if they had opened the closet or looked in the closet, it would have ended the ordeal for Jessica and she probably would still be alive today. Of course, those detectives weren't going to the trailer to look for Jessica at first, they were just going to look for John Cooey following up on a lead. So obviously there is no blame to put on those police detectives, it's just one of those instances where they are so close to finding Jessica and so close to changing the outcome of the case. Now when John learned that the detectives were out looking for him, he panicked. John decided that he had to do away with Jessica before he was caught. So John decided to bury Jessica alive. These details of John's confession were immediately sent to the Citrus County Sheriff's Office. And shortly after midnight on Saturday, March 19th, 2005, a team of investigators arrived at John Cooey's half-sister's trailer. It was there that this team of investigators located the shallow grave where John described Jessica's body would be. Inside this shallow grave, they found Jessica's clothed body wrapped up in two plastic bin bags. Her wrists had been bound together but she'd managed to poke two fingers through the plastic bin bags in some kind of an attempt to escape. When the bags were removed from Jessica's body, investigators discovered that she had actually died, clutching her purple dolphin toy. John confessed to the investigators that he had actually tricked Jessica into getting into the plastic bags by telling her that he was going to take her home. He instead took Jessica to a pre-dug shallow grave and buried her alive because John decided that he had nothing else that he could do with the girl. He had grown bored of her. Jessica's body was immediately transferred to a morgue in Leesburg, Florida, where a medical examiner performed an autopsy. While unwrapping Jessica's body, the medical examiner discovered that Jessica had gone into the first plastic bag feet first before the second plastic bag was placed over her head. There was no indication to show that she had tried to kick through the plastic bags. Bear in mind that these bags were also tied around the outside, so it would have been really difficult for her to try and kick in the first place. Both bags were securely knotted and the medical examiner determines that the likely cause of death was suffocation. The medical examiner determined that Jessica succumbed to the suffocation within three to five minutes of being buried. The medical examiner also reported that Jessica's body was in a medium state of decomposition. Though the medical examiner was unable to pinpoint an exact time when Jessica died, he suggested that Jessica perished about three weeks prior to her body being discovered. Jessica's fingernails were painted with a peach colored nail polish and the two fingernails that were protruding from the plastic bag in her attempt to escape had become mummified. The simple fact alone that Jessica had tried to escape from the plastic bags by sticking her fingers out was evidence to suggest that Jessica was still alive when she was buried. There, alone in the dark and under soil, clutching that dolphin, She suffocated. John would later attempt to justify what he did by saying that Jessica didn't attempt to fight back. The medical examiner also discovered several vaginal lacerations, which indicated sexual assault. The medical examiner also estimated that these lacerations occurred no more than six hours before her death. Jessica's gastrointestinal tract was also completely empty. The medical examiner also determined that the last time Jessica ate was between 12 hours to three to four days before she died. Traces of cocaine were also found on Jessica's body. Jessica had not ingested cocaine herself, but had been in an environment where crack cocaine had been ingested and was in use. On Sunday, March 20th, 2005, John Cooey was booked into the Citrus County Jail, which was in Lakanto, Florida, and he was immediately put on suicide watch. Three of his housemates, his half-sister, his half-sister's boyfriend, and his half-sister's daughter-in-law were charged with obstruction of justice for lying to the police about where John Cooey was. The fourth housemate, Jean Secord, who had not been at the house when the police had arrived looking for for John Cooey, he was charged with failure to pay child support. The citizens of Homo Sasso were absolutely outraged, and rightfully so. Everyone who was following the case demanded justice. Mark Lunsford knew something had to be done to protect children from sexual predators and to prevent this kind of situation from ever happening again. In the weeks after Jessica's body was found, Mark Lunsford lobbied the Florida state legislators to enact tougher laws. A bill was then written that would require increased prison sentences, electronic tracking of all convicted sex offenders on probation, and the mandatory use of state databases by all local prohibition officials, so known sex offenders could not avoid the scrutiny of law enforcement. This bill is called the Jessica Lunsford Act, and it would effectively become her legacy. The bill was quickly approved and signed into law on May 2nd, 2005. The law took effect on the 1st of September of that same year, protecting children across the state of Florida. Since this law was instated, other states in the United States also adopted their own form of the Jessica Lunsford Act. The law requires a minimum sentence of 25 years and a maximum of life in prison for first-time child sex offenders for offenses against children under age 12. On April 1st, 2005, a grand jury indicted John Cooey on charges of first-degree murder, kidnapping, sexual battery, and burglary. The various charges made against John's housemates were eventually dropped. Five days later on April 6th, 2005, John Cooey appeared in court and miraculously, he actually pled not guilty despite all of the evidence that there was. There was so much substantial evidence against him, there was the confession, there's DNA evidence inside John Kiwi's bedroom in the Dixon trailer, and the fact that he pointed out and knew exactly where the shallow grave was dug, where Jessica's body could be found. And a lot of his confession matched up with the physical DNA evidence and medical examiner reports, um, which kind of proved that his confession was real and authentic. It was during this hearing that the state declares that they were seeking the death penalty in this case. John was then sent back to the county jail where he was held without bail. John was kept completely isolated from other inmates of the Citrus County Jail and was on the suicide watch for the entire time he was there. Guards that were watching John Cooey reported that he read a lot of Christian religious material. However, he never read the Bible, but he did also keep a journal. Despite John's not guilty plea, he then made a second Confessions to the authorities of what he did. And in this confession he admitted again to killing Jessica Lunsford. In the spring of 2006, as John's trial date quickly started to approach, Judge Rick Howard faced the very daunting task of finding a fair and impartial jury. The case had received extensive national and regional media attention across all news outlets, which meant that it'd be very, very, very difficult to find a panel of jurors that hadn't had some kind of bias or hadn't had had a predetermined opinion of the case. The judge decided that the jury would be made up of residents from Lake County, which is the furthest community away from Homo in Florida in the 5th District. In June of that same year, Judge Howard heard a pretrial testimony regarding the investigation of John Cooey and ruled that the confessions John had made to the detectives Grace and Atchison in Augusta originally, had to be thrown out. This was all because John Cooey's rights had been violated violated after he repeatedly asked for a lawyer to be present and for legal representation but those requests were frequently denied by those two detectives, meaning that the confession was obtained illegally. While this confession being thrown out didn't really affect the case too much, it did deal quite a blow to the prosecution. Then on March 7th, 2007, John Cooey was found guilty of all charges relating to the Jessica Lunsford case, including abduction and murder.
2: In the circuit court of the 11th Judicial Circuit of the state of Florida, in and four, Miami-Dade County. Change of venue from Fifth Circuit, Citrus County. The State of Florida versus Johnny Vander Cooey. Case number 2005, CF 298A. Verdict count one. We the jury find as follows as to the defendant in this case. The defendant is guilty of murder in the first degree of as charged in the, in- the indictment. Verdict count two. We the jury find as follows as to the defendant in this case. The defendant is guilty of burglary of a dwelling with a battery as charged in the indictment. Verdict count three, we the jury find as follows as to the defendant in this case, the defendant is guilty of kidnapping as charged in the indictment. So say we all this, verdict count four, we the jury find as follows as to the defendant in this case, the defendant is guilty of sexual battery on a child under 12 years of age as charged in the indictment so say we all.
0: The jury deliberated for about four hours on John's innocence or guilt, and then was tasked with recommending either life in prison without the ability for parole or the death penalty. These two sentences are the only two sentences possible under Florida state law. A week later, after about 15 minutes of deliberation, the jury recommended that John Cooey would be put to death.
1: Madam Clerk, you may publish the recommendation.
0: In the circuit court of the 11th Judicial Circuit of the State of Florida, in and
2: for Miami-Dade County, change of venue from the 5th Circuit, Citrus County, State of Florida versus Johnny Vander Cooey, case number 2005, CF 298.
0: A majority of the jury, by a vote of 10 to 2, advise and recommend to the court that it impose the death penalty upon Johnny Vander Cooey, Cooey, for the murder of Jessica Marie Lunsford. On August 11th, 2007, a jury overseeing the Lunsford case voted 10 versus two that John Cooey be eligible for the death sentence. Now under Florida state law, the vote for the death sentence does not have to be unanimous for it to be recommended. Now John's defense argued that John had been subject to a lifetime of abuse and suffered a lower than average IQ. If that was found to be true, the whole lower than average IQ thing, it would mean that John would avoid a death Sentence under the 2002 Supreme Court ruling that ruled anybody who was handicapped or had a disability cannot be put to death under the death penalty and they are not eligible at all for it. However, the most credible IQ test that could be done rated John's IQ as being 78. The standard acceptable rate for mental disability in Florida State is 70. So, as John's IQ was found to be 78, uh, this whole Defense this whole argument was ruled out completely. Now, I just have to point out that IQ tests and IQ is a very, very subjective thing. And I wouldn't particularly say that IQ is something that is very reliable and something that you can use to prove someone's intelligence or not. But in this case, it was shown that. John didn't have any sort of mental disability or anything like that. On August 24th, 2007, John Cooey was sentenced by Judge Howard to death. He also received three consecutive life sentences for his crimes.
1: And for the murder of Jessica Marie Lunsford, this court sentences you, John Evander Cooey, to death.
0: Now, due to Florida state law, this death penalty was automatically appealed. However, John never made it to the appeal, and he never actually made it to start his sentencing. John John Cooey died on September 30th, 2009 at about 11.15am. He died at the Jacksonville Memorial Hospital from complications with anal cancer. I suppose, in some ways, that alone served justice for Jessica Lunsford. Jessica may be gone, but her legacy lives on in the Jessica Lunsford Act, protecting hundreds of thousands of children from sexual predators. Almost three years to the day of when Jessica went missing, Jessica's father, Mark Lunsford, was represented in a pre-trial brief. Now this pre-trial brief was against the Citrus County Sheriff's Department and the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. This was due to a wrongful death and negligence lawsuits that Mark Lunsford was filing against the state and the Citrus County Sheriff's Office. This was all due to those police officers from the Citrus County Sheriff's Office going to the Dixon trailer and not conducting a thorough search of the trailer which if they had done would have resulted in Jessica being found alive. Now this lawsuit also had some other allegations. The lawsuit also alleged that police dogs and bloodhounds had indicated to the authorities in the direction of the Dixon trailer, but these indications from the dogs were ignored by their handlers. It went on to accuse the officials that Mark Lunsford's father, Jessica's grandfather, was being investigated as the prime suspect while their evidence pointed elsewhere. Their evidence pointing to John Cooey.
1: as a crime that was followed nationwide.
0: A little girl- girl
1: kidnapped, raped and murdered, buried in a neighbor's yard in Florida. The parents of that girl are now suing the law enforcement agencies that captured her killer. The father and mother of nine-year-old victim Jessica Lunsford gave notice to authorities today. West WestJu's Greg Fox is here live to explain what they want. Greg? Uh, Jim, the sheriff of Citrus County calls this new development shocking. He says the only one responsible for the kidnapping and killing of Jessica Lunsford is John Cooey, the man sent to death row for the crimes.
2: You didn't lose your kid.
1: I lost mine. Clearly upset while recalling the horrible death of his daughter, Mark Lunsford insisted on talking only about an upcoming fundraiser for a child advocacy center named for Jessica and refused to answer questions about his notice to sue the sheriff and state law enforcement. Mark, your letter said the sheriff was negligent. Was the sheriff negligent? Well,
2: I know that, that, that law enforcement needs child advocacy centers to be able to do prosecution against sex offenders and predators. And
1: and I have to stay focused on that. Jessica disappeared in February 2005, launching a search that lasted for weeks. Roughly a month later, neighbor John Cooey was arrested and later showed authorities where to find the nine-year-old's body. Cooey was convicted and sentenced to die. We truly believe that this litigation is baseless. Citrus County Sheriff Jeff Dossie told reporters Cooey alone is responsible for Jessica's death.
0: We are going to vigorously defend our agencies against this baseless allegation made by the Lunsfords,
1: that we failed to do our job. But Cooey's confession may be the basis for the lawsuit. In it, Cooey says officers did not thoroughly search his home, where he says Jessica had been hidden and was likely still alive. He said, quote, if they, deputies, would have came in, they would have caught her in my closet. They didn't search. An autopsy showed Jessica likely was buried alive but could not determine how long she had lived after her kidnapping.
0: I couldn't find any more information on this lawsuit and I do believe that Mark Lunsford was successful in suing the state and suing the Citrus County officials. Now, that's absolutely everything that I have in this case. It is a long case, there's a lot that went on. There's a lot of potential negligence that was accused, but ultimately, I like to believe that justice was found for Jessica Lunsford and her family. Thank you all so much for watching this episode in my Curious Case series. I usually upload two videos a week, one on Wednesdays and one on Sundays. Today is Wednesday and it's the Sunday video, but I explained in the very beginning of the video why that video has been delayed to Today, but I will be uploading another Curious Case True Crime episode on Sunday. Thank you so much for almost a thousand subscribers on my channel. That is absolutely crazy to me. I- It's literally so mind-blowing. As soon as I get to a thousand subscribers the community tab will be enabled Which means I'll be able to keep you posted on if there's any delays for videos and even run polls to see what kind of cases You want to see in the future. I'd like to thank everyone that comments regularly on my videos I read every single comment and I try to reply to everyone if they're positive comments And if they are comments that add to the conversation of the case Um, Thank you I love to see those comments on my videos and thank you to everyone who shares my videos also on social media It means so much to me and I'm really happy that people are seeing these cases and looking at these people's stories. Don't forget to subscribe and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time that I post. Now with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case. I'm almost there, kids. And we're back. (laughs) Okay.
1: Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime.